It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main And good morning, everyone. And I, yeah, I, caught, I, I forgot to put the screen up so you could adjust your height there. But I did catch you doing your hair at the last second, so you're always the last second. You might as well be sipping a cup of coffee. And not see now. Th- okay, hold on. There we go. Cheers. We got it. Cheers. There we go. Change the color of the image. It's it's weird. Cheers, everybody. Everybody, sip a, a cup of coffee this morning. Good morning, everybody online watching. Hey, we've got the whole. Uh, Steve Sass and Amanda Smith fan club with us today too. Um, I'm going to give them a ding. Where's, where's my other dinger? I, I've only got one here. What? What? Where's Where's Legata's got it. That somebody she's gonna, stole. She's going to use it when she wants her uh, snacks. Nothing ever. Nothing ever moves off this desk, so I can't even imagine. Where where it has Kathleen? What did you do? Oh, it it's hiding, hiding here behind the light. Right there, right in front of you. Right, right here. There we go. Woo! And uh, I don't like that color. Uh, I'm going to change. I don't know, but the flower over your. Uh, oh yes! By the heavy. way, look at that. My amaryllis is blooming. Uh, can we do? No, we want to go this it way. It looked like it was just part of the sign. I know, didn't it? And look at that. There we go. Isn't that lovely? Let's uh, bring that more into the camera. There we go. This is, you know, my amaryllis. Uh, I uh, I overwinter them, and then um, I put them in the basement for a while, and then bring them up and water them. They get going again, and usually they're blooming around March. Here it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're almost into June, and I only got one of them to bloom. This year, and the others are just sending up strappy leaves, and like, no, we don't feel like it this year. Um, I had okay. one, one bloom; it sent out several blooms, and the rest of them, yeah, leaves, and that was it. So I'll just do what I always do: I put them in the backyard and let them enjoy the sun and the 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 outdoors. Uh, the bring them in, squirrels. Yeah, they don't. Squirrels don't don't uh, dig in them. I, I have a feeling they're not very palatable to squirrels, kind of like uh, narcissists. Um, but, uh, you Narcissus? know, Narcissus, Narcissus, what did I say? Narcissus, yeah, Narcissus, yeah, whatever it's, uh, <laughs> it's, 
it's 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 a, it's a flower that thinks a lot of itself. <laughs> yep. Yep. There we go. Hey, welcome to the show and all you people watching uh, for the first time, uh, some of you in Indiana, because that's where we're going today. We are uh, going to the, if you saw my blog post, and I encourage you to go there to MikeNovak.net, and you can see how it's spelled right below me. You can see how it's spelled right there. Um, and I do a blog each uh, each week for the show. Um, we did a tour of a place called Lydic Bog. And I and I want to say Lydic Blog, uh, but no, that wouldn't be right. But I did a blog about the bog, and um, uh, it was... What is so cool about Lydic Bog is that it was just discovered. And when I say just, meaning in the last eight years. Now, how is that... discovered by people. Uh, well, yeah, but... Uh, or, or recently. The squirrels uh, knew it was there. The, the, you know, and, and lots of critters. Birds knew it was there, and, and aquatic qu- critters knew it was there. Uh, but humans didn't really ha- have an idea uh, about it. And it's in northwest Indiana. It's it's just west of South Bend, Indiana. Um, and it got, okay, air quotes, discovered uh, very recently by one of our guests on the show today. Um, and both of our guests um, are very involved in teaching folks about nature in Indiana. In fact, they've started something called Indiana Nature LLC, and you can find that link uh, by going to my blog post, or you can just go to indiananature.net. And they also have an amazing uh, Facebook page, and I say amazing because you know the, the issues that you and I have with Facebook um, and, and our love hate relationship with Facebook, but they have cornered the market on it because they got a lot of people who follow. And I think some of them are watching the show today. And by the way, if you're watching the show, I hope you're wa- you can be watching it on Facebook. You can go to YouTube, please subscribe. If you go to our YouTube channel, um, and, uh, you can watch on, uh, our website, MikeNovak.net. Uh, Kathleen's up there. She gets that thing posted and, and ready to go. In fact, she is the keeper of the Instagram as well. Um, and there's different ways that you can, uh, follow us and, and we hope you do. And we hope you enjoy the show today because I am so thrilled to have these folks on with us. And that's, that's the focus of today's show, Indiana, Indiana nature, what's going on over there because, and I've been promising to do this with steve i don't know for about the same length of time that uh, a lydic bog has been discovered you know eight or nine years here so let's just do that let's just let us bring in our guest lower left is steve sass from indiana nature llc lower right amanda smith from indiana nature llc uh good morning to both of you good morning good morning and uh, I have to tell you, Steve uh, was was such a good guy. He went out and got a brand new camera so that he could uh, be on the show because the ratio was like this. And we said, "No, it's got to be big." All right, yeah. uh, and we and we we want to really see you there. Uh, but thank you so much for being here, and thank you for the tour that you gave me of Lydic Bog in Northwest Indiana uh, a couple of weeks ago. Kathleen and I went unfortunately peggy was not able to be with us but you're going to see some really cool stuff today peggy and and the folks watching um uh on the the live stream uh it was a revelation 
Steve mm-hmm. and Amanda. You guys, by the way, were great. And it was one of those, it was in the midst of that heat wave we had in uh, the early part of the month. So it was in the mid 80s. Um, and there we were schlepping along and, and hiking uh, into a bog. Um, and of course, as soon as we got out of it, thanks to Steve, we went down the road and had ice cream. Um, and he told us, he told us where we could get, yeah, I mean, that's what you do. You go down the road, you go down the road and have ice cream. Um, Steve, um, I have to start, you know, I want to get to, uh, Indiana nature and and the stuff you're doing for everybody, because it's not just about Lydic bog, but that is sort of the focus Mm -hmm. of what we're doing here today. Um, and it's an interesting story. You don't have the full 45 minutes to explain how, yes, Peggy. Before we start talking about it, for any of our viewers who might not know what a bog is, oh, well, can we define what a bog is? No, let's not. We're going to skip right over that. All right. Yes, because this is an educational program as well, Steve. Uh, no, Amanda, you tell us. What's, what's oh. the, I know, yes, tell us what a bog <laughs> is. Well, um, it's a specialized habitat that was shaped by glacial um, goings-ons um, several you know, thousand years ago in this case. So um, the bog that we're talking about today had, um, Steve's got some great uh, photos to show that kind of show these ice sheets um, that were covering uh, northern you know, Indiana and uh, around the Great Lakes region. So a large chunk of ice uh, kind of sloughed off. Uh, probably right here in this area and um, created a very, um, a a lake essentially. And then over time, uh, it's a fairly shallow lake. And over time we had a mat of um, vegetation um, that specialized into this, into this area. So in this case, it's, um, it's, it's a a rain fed um, bog. All right. And I may so, have to have Steve help with uh, with that a little bit too. Sure. Anything you want to add, Steve? Yeah. I mean, it's basically, a bog is a type of a wetland that is characterized by um, high acidity in the water and the lack of groundwater. So, um, as Amanda was talking about, the the ice that broke off of the glaciers formed these uh, this line of kettle lakes. We call them kettle lakes because they're literally you know, shaped like a kettle. There's no shoreline there. They're, they're, uh, they, you go right from um, ground to deep water typically. And um, without the without having groundwater feeding into it over time, the vegetation builds up. And as the vegetation decomposes, it, it adds acidity to the soil and or to the water, excuse me. And um, the uh, result is that you have a, a wetland that is very nutrient depleted. Um, unlike other types of higher alkalinity wetlands. And so what happens is then the plants that um, that grow in these types of wetlands, the high acidity, low nutrient wetlands, um, tend to become very specialized. And so we wind up having um, several types of carnivorous plants, for example, that have to supplement their uh, nutrient intake through digesting insects. You know, that's interesting. Um, I wonder why if there's so much vegetation uh those of us uh let me put it this way those of us who compost uh look at, and we put this in our compost piles and we watch it uh decompose and, and turn into rich soil and we think wow that's 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 full of nutrients but you have a bog where you have vegetation and it decomposes why is it not more nutrient rich do you know 
I think it has um, to do with the pH of the soil or the water, excuse me, as the um, as the plants decompose, the, the pH also drops and um, the plants are not able to use the, the nutrients with, with such uh, in a such low um, pH, a high acidity environment. All right. Well, let's get to some of the, the charts and graphs that uh, uh, Amanda alluded to. And it's a good thing I have them because if I didn't have them, Amanda, I would look pretty dumb at this point. <laughs> I <laughs> well, set you up. You did. You set me up, and I you, it, in a good way this time. Good. So uh, let's look at uh, this uh, ice sheet, and you can see in the background in 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 uh, light gray the outline of the Great Lakes, Michigan, and going down into uh, Indiana, um, and uh, and Ohio, and Illinois to some degree. This is the uh, these are the ice sheets from the last uh, glacial age, which ended about. 8,000 years ago, um, depending on where you are. And um, uh, Steve, uh, what are we uh, looking at that's of importance to us and uh, Lydic Bog? Sure. If you look at the outline of the state of Indiana, you will see that there were those two glacial lobes that um, came into Indiana. Just the, the very eastern part of the Lake Michigan lobe came into um, the very northwestern part of Indiana. And then we had the Saginaw lobe, um, which came into the Indiana through the, the eastern boundaries. And the two of them kind of came together where you see that line that, uh, that delineates the Lake Michigan lobe from the Saginaw lobe. That line um, runs almost exactly through the area where we are talking about where Lydic Bog is at mm -hmm. just west of South Bend. And so there was this cataclysmic glacial event that took place there. All right. And uh, this is a, a, an updated map. You can see basically the outline of the city of South Bend. And if you look to the left, and, and I'll do a close-up of this in a second, you'll see the chain uh, of lakes that runs north-south um, and uh, what part of the glacier uh, uh, formed that? Yeah, presumably this would have been um, the intersection of those two lobes um, where they would have came, to, uh, came together. We're talking about uh, 16,000 years ago, approximately. And um, when that happened, we had these big chunks of ice that broke off. And as the glaciers retreated, these huge chunks of ice, and we think about... Um, glaciers um we don't we don't necessarily um understand how large they actually were so i was looking i was at the bog this morning and i noticed the interpretive sign they have um a picture of the wisconsin glacier um compared to the willis tower in chicago and it was like maybe five times as tall as the willis tower so these were enormous blocks of ice that fell off of there and carved out these um, these lakes. And you can see as they retreated to the north, they just were boom, 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 right up into Michigan. And and you can see the, the north-south chain and uh, Lydic Bog there is identified by the little red circle. Um, and it's interesting that it is right below US-20, right just south of US-20. And so the fact that it, that it folks lost track of it um, after uh, several generations is is quite interesting. I want to pop this up. I, I'm not sure what this is, so maybe you can explain. This is another map 
of the uh, the, the lakes there. Um, and uh, I assume this is a, a much older map. This map that's is the from county, 18... Um, that's a yeah, St. Joe County map from 1863, which is the oldest map that I've been able to find of St. Joe County. And I put the red arrow um, pointing at what is now Lydic Bog. In 1863, that was labeled Beaver Lake because it, it because it was actually an open lake back in that uh, time period. Yeah. I want to um, point out also, if you look at the bottom of this um, map, you'll see uh, it's hard to read the text, but the the southernmost lake on this picture is uh, is labeled Chain Lake or South Chain Lake, and you'll see that there is a um, a stream that flows out of that to the west. Mm -hmm. And that actually then flows into a little town called Crumbstown in um, St. Joe County, which is where um, the headwaters of the Kankakee River are at. So this okay. is, these are lakes are all in the Kankakee watershed, and they're at the very um, headwaters of the, of the Kankakee. So the water from Lydic Bog will eventually go um, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico versus most of St. Joe County, and in particular, South, most of South Bend um, is in the uh, St. Joe River watershed, which flows to the Great Lakes. And uh, one more map yeah, here before we get... Uh, one more map is uh, St. Joseph County Kettle Lakes, which uh, has a, a Facebook page, and that's where I stole this, and you can see the lakes clearly delineated there. Um, and, yeah, and, and you can also see they're all quite close to South Bend. Now, as you pointed out to me, Steve, some of those lakes are more developed than others. Um, Blightic Bog uh, got missed completely because, probably because it's so small. Uh, but uh, there, are, there are developments and golf courses and whatever on these lakes, aren't there? Yes, there are actually two golf courses on these lakes. Um, Mud Lake has a uh, on the southern edge of it, a golf course that's owned by the city of South Bend called Elbel Park. And then also South Chain Lake has on its um, border, on its eastern edge, the South Bend Country Club. And then um, uh, yeah, some of the other ones, Twin Lakes has uh, some subdivision development around it. And um, so does um, North Chain Lake and portions of South Chain Lake. And that's one of the advantages of what's going on at uh, Lydic Bog is that there is no development around it, mainly because it got forgotten. All right, I, I'm going to ask you to tell me in, I don't know, as short a time as you can, how it happened that you got involved in uh, discovering, again, air quotes, uh, uh, Lydic Bog. How, how did that come about in uh, 2014 and, and slightly before that? Back in 2014, the event that was the catalyst was um, Jerry Wilhelm, who was one of the co-authors of Plants of the Chicago Region, along with the late Floyd Swink, was uh, putting together new a new volume, which is the fifth edition, which is now titled uh, Flora of the Chicago Region, which is the, the tome of, of, um, of botany for the Chicago Region. And uh, he was looking for a specific plant that's rare to the Chicago region called Schutzeria palustris. Uh, common name is bog arrow grass. It's one of those misnomers. It's not a, a, actually a grass. Um, he was working with a local botanist named Scott Namasnik, who was a contributor to that um, floor of the Chicago region. And he asked Scott if he knew of this plant anywhere in um, the Chicago area or in, in Indiana, 
And uh, Scott remembered reading about it in a publication called the um, American Midwestern Naturalist, which was produced um, a periodical um, produced by uh, Notre Dame. Um, and back in the early 1900s, there was a biologist professor, um, Julius Newland, who worked at the University of Notre Dame, um, who wrote about, who mentioned seeing that plant. And um, Scott remembered reading about it, and he went back and found the article from Father Newland. Um, and he described seeing it at a bog in the Chain of Lakes area of St. Joseph County. And so um, I live not far from there. And Scott contacted me asking me if I knew of a bog in that vicinity. And I said that I didn't specifically know of one, but if there was one in existence, it would probably be in this area, which led us to looking at Google Earth imagery. And um, we were zooming in um, remotely. He was at his house, I was at my house, and we were um, looking at Google Earth images. And he identified a spot that he was fairly convinced um, had a strong likelihood of being a bog. And um, the reason why he came to that conclusion was he could see a, um, a dark ring around the edge of it, which is characteristic of a, of a moat, which is typical for the edges, the margins of a bog. And um, he also identified what he thought were tamarack trees um, in that area. And um, I, I thought he was joking because I've never seen anybody identify a tree from Google Earth imagery, you know, from not a street view, mind you, just the regular satellite view. And um, so that led us to uh, try to explore that area to see if there actually was a bog back there, which is a really exciting premise that there could be something that nobody knows about that's back there. And so um, we, we tried to um, access the bog through um, by a canoe off of North Chain Lake, where we paddled up to its the southern edge of um, what was or the northern edge of North Chain Lake to try to then walk to the bog. But we found that there was no shoreline there uh, where we could um, get out of the canoe, and and there were some neighbors that were looking at us and funny, and um, so uh, we we came back about a, a week or two later um, with. Um, our friend Roger Hedge, who is a, a, with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. And um, Scott identified another a path that was a, a, a dead end road that led to a little, uh, like an ATV track that went up the hill. And so this would have been in the summer of 2014, um, the three of us uh, parked at a public boat launch at North Chain Lake and, and we um, we hiked it, we, we walked along this um, dead end road and up the hill up this ATV track and um, yeah and, and you see the, the photo um, we went down the hill we and sure enough here is uh, the moat that uh, that he saw and we had knee boots on and we went immediately over the tops of our knee boots it was a really warm probably 85 plus degree day full sun and um, and, we, and we fought through some really thick dense vegetation. We'll talk more about the plants uh, later, but, and then eventually we came out onto this, this clearing. And um, so the, the photo that you see here is 
Roger on the left and Scott on the right, and we were um, we were at this point walking on this vegetated mat, and in the distance, um, you can see the um, the trees, which are tamarack trees. Uh, so he was he was absolutely spot on um, that those were tamarack trees. And um, and what uh, I, I want to stop you there for a second. What is it about tamarack trees that uh, uh, they do so well in bogs? Well, their adaptation. Um, you know, we have like different have uh, evolved into growing in different types of environments. So, for example, if we go to the Indiana Dunes area, um, up on the dunes, we'll have typically black oaks and sassafras and, and um, white oaks and things like that. But um, tamarack trees are um, typically the ones, the, the North American ones, Larix laricina, are, are trees of, of wetlands and particularly uh, bogs and fens. So um, it's it's just one Another. of those things you see a tamarack tree, you know that you're in uh, typically a, a high quality environment, wetland. Those are larch, also known as larches, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So there you have it. You guys found that. And um, I, I imagine immediately you knew you were onto something and it needed to be protected. Um, it's so you, you had to, yeah. if, if it had been me, I would have been filled with a sense of urgency that we, we really have to do something right. Let's put up a fence right now. <laughs> so, who, who owned that property? Was that state, county, private? It was privately owned. And um, the, it was owned by a, a family trust. And prior to going in there, we attempted to contact them. Um, we had just their, the contact information uh, that was available on the, the property records through mm-hmm. the, um, the county. And um, there was never uh, an answer on the phone number, or and there was not an answering machine, and so um, we just decided to, to give it a go, and hopefully that nobody was there to shoot us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't it, know, um, yeah. but um, so, yeah. Um, so but it may have never been developed in part. It was in someone's trust, and it was just land somebody had. Yeah, and uh, and we looked back at the the older maps and um it was that beaver lake which is now lighting bog at one point was renamed wolverton lake and i i wondered who wolverton was and i did a little bit of digging on it and it was a man named jacob wolverton who owned that property in the early 1900s late 1800s and he was an industrialist um, in saint joe county and i later found out that he had ties to the university of notre dame so um, it kind of made sense that perhaps he would have been a contemporary of Father Newland, and Father Newland would have been able perhaps to travel um, you know, probably 10 miles or so. Um, I don't know how they travel, <laughs> how we would have traveled on foot or horseback um, in those days to, to get out and, and look at that property. Um, but and Mike, to answer your question about how we felt, I think, yeah, when we, we didn't really talk about um, the holistic view of, of what we had found. We were more concentrating on uh, the the amazing species of plants that we were finding there. And it wasn't until um, later in that day after we came out of there that we, we kind of all looked at it and went, so this is pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I think I actually had to um, like, you know, instigate that conversation you know when, when you're working with with scientists like that they're they're like hyper focused on 
on these um, incredible plants that they found. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more um, passionate as a lay person, I guess, going like, we need to protect this. Well, yeah, no, was- you're, you're the, there's got to be a realist in the group uh, somehow uh, when you find something of this quality. And, and it takes me to Amanda. Uh, what was your reaction the first time you saw the bog? Well, I just couldn't believe it. It's it's um, it's amazing to think that something this this important and special and and rare um, has been discovered. You know, in this century, um, it gives me hope that that there's still other important remnant habitat that that could still be there that is in need of discovery and and protection. Um, but I think it just plays to that that imagination that we have that um, and that. They kind of it's 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 important to think that maybe not everything's been discovered um, and then um, how it went about, you know, how they went about actually getting it protected, I think, is is also mm-hmm. inspiring and people working together, um, funding coming through uh, both uh public through through um the state and then through land trusts and just private citizens i just it's it's remarkable yeah it it absolutely is and and we should uh mentioned the shirley hines land trust who has gotten involved in this and and has played a role in preserving uh, this area, and uh, I think you alluded to this earlier, Steve, that the whole area is not protected yet. The, you, as we stood there looking out over the bog, you said, "Oh, and that there, there's a parcel there, and there's a parcel there, and you guys would like to bring that all into the fold right now, wouldn't you?" Yes, for sure. And um, so, the, what happened then was a year, the, the following year after we had identified this, we had been in Shirley Hines Land Trust had um, has been operating in Lake Porter and Laporte counties in Indiana for over three decades, and they were um, tapped, I guess, by the Indiana Land Tri- Trust Alliance to be the one that would eventually move into St. Joseph County, uh, which was not at the time protected by any or uh, any land trust. So if a property came available like this, there was really uh, no entity that could acquire it and steward it. And so in 2015, miraculously, 188 acres of property out there, which includes about two thirds of the actual bog uh, became on the market. And so we, since we already had done a lot of research on um, the, the properties out there and we had species lists and things like that uh, they were well positioned to be able to move on it um, th- that also was coupled it was almost a perfect storm mike i mean i think um, finding it was one thing but then also having it go up for sale was another thing but then uh, the other m- miraculous thing that took place was 2016 was the bicentennial of indiana and um, prior to the bicentennial base governor daniels had uh, when he was still in office set up a fund for land acquisition to commemorate the bicentennial of indiana and so there was um, money out there to be able to be used for acquiring property now it requires a match um, so shirley hines then steps in and applied for the Bicentennial Land Trust grant um, and was able to um, come up with matching funds from other donors to be able to purchase the property. 
but to answer your question, yeah, it's it's 100 and I think 178 acres, um, and that it doesn't include all of the bog. So portions of the the eastern part of the bog are still privately owned. They are not developable, uh, or they probably would have been a long time ago because it's it's a wetland. But um, on when when a land trust acquires a property like this, we're we're also not only looking at just the high quality part of the property, but also uh, protecting the areas that surround the property. We need to have some buffer land in there to be able to um, keep the bad stuff from getting in there. Yeah, you know, and I and I would say that uh, it would make me nervous that uh, other entities own other parts because you say it's not developable until it's uh, because it's wetland. Well, we you know what we've done to wetlands over the past couple of centuries. We just drain the heck out of them. Uh, and well, we put- in the Indiana, we passed a law, you know, recently that uh, doesn't have the same requirements for wetlands, which makes it even more vulnerable. So that was, uh, that's another threat, really, that is looming in that area. Oh, dear. Uh, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, I know I I, I heard some good laws. Uh, we need to break here, but uh, uh, Steve was telling me about good laws that had just been passed in South Bend. Uh, but then, of course, you've got state laws that you have to um, adhere to, and uh, those can cause issues because I, I, it would just be horrible if somebody developed it on the other end and just started draining. Say, oh, we we need to uh, develop this land. Um, so that's that is the fragility of our natural areas, and and even when you discover something new, it doesn't guarantee that um, it's going to be protected. All right, we need to take a break. Um, I can warn you right now, Steve and Amanda, this is going to go longer than the next half hour. It's so you better stick around. You guys are not going anywhere. Uh, because Make this sure is, more coffee gets put on for you. Yeah, yeah here's a question to consider from one of our viewers. Uh, why is it, uh, why are you in LLC? Uh, they're kind of, and I, I wouldn't have asked that question, but I, it's an interesting question. Um, and uh, one of our viewers says, look into the Lumpkin Foundation. Uh, which works in northwest central Illinois on habitat preservation. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're looking for more people to, to get involved, uh, that might be something you, you might already know about them. But uh, I'm just uh, telling you some of the stuff that's coming in. Uh, and, and please uh, submit your comments, your questions, your observations, uh, whether you're on uh, YouTube or on Facebook or I don't think you can do it on Twitter, uh, but uh, I'm glad you're it watching. Can, but it doesn't come back to us. We'll yeah, we'll see. see we'll see it after the show. Unfortunately, uh, it's the Mike Novak show with Peggy Malecki talking to Steve Sass and Amanda Smith from Indiana Nature LLC. We'll be back right after this. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. One of the other advantages in using our happy leaf lights to grow your tomatoes at home is they use very little energy. Um, They're using about 30 watts of energy, so if they're on for 16 hours a day, it's less than a nickel per day to run the lights. 
All the other costs are some seeds, some nutrients, which are also very inexpensive. And um, you can actually grow your own tomatoes that are pesticide-free indoors, in your basement, in a closet, anywhere you want. And we are showing you how to do that. You're shaking your head, Peggy. It's no better the second time. <laughs> uh, oh, you thought it was fun the first time. I I think it's fun. Uh, but let's not trash the beach, and let's not trash our bogs. Um, we uh, we took a, a walk over to Lydic Bog. By the way, we have Steve Sass with us and Amanda Smith from Indiana Nature LLC, and we're talking about Lydic Bog in mm-hmm. northwest Indiana. And. I can put in a quick plug for them. Um, if you're not on the Indiana Nature Facebook group, you might want to consider joining it. Yeah. They've got a great interactive community there. Uh, they they do. And they put a lot of great stuff up there. And uh, you guys, uh, you get a lot from uh, your uh, your participants, don't you? Yes. We do. Um, I'm going mean, to let Amanda take that one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There, we've met some wonderful people through this group, some of which we haven't met, some of which we have. Um, we have just such, I think, an engaging community. They're very passionate, um, very curious, and really willing to share. Um, and what is hard is when you start to become kind of an expert in something, it, it can become very difficult to work with beginners. Um, but we're letting in beginners and new people to the group, you know, every week. Um, And we have some people that have been in our group for six years, and um, many of which are experts in their field. Um, We have a lot of experts. We have a lot of, we say uh, that E.O. Wilson is that um, everyone is a a student and a teacher. Um, But we try to meet people at where they are in the journey of of kind of awakening when it comes to understanding our ecosystem and and where we are. So we have a fairly uh, small focus of Indiana, surrounding states around Indiana, and then those that have uh, some sort of connection to Indiana but have left. Um, So, or at least the region itself, um, you know, throughout the state. So um, it's a wonderful place. I learn every single day that I, you know, that, that that we've been running the group. Um, and I should mention that, um, and by the way, it's good that Illinois makes the cut, uh, occasionally. <laughs> um, well, it's great. It's I mean, Indiana, Indiana is to <laughs> yes, 
Well, Indiana is not well known as being a, a, you know, a super progressive environmental state. Um, and so to find your tribe of people um, that, that want to, to learn and, and, and share the same things is just so comforting, um, I think, for a lot of folks in the group. Well, you know, that's interesting. And we had, and I don't want to get into a too political a conversation. And, uh, uh, and I know you try to avoid that on your site, which is very important. And, you know, and, and things about letting cats out and then you get the cat and the dog people and the cat and the bird people going at each other. And you don't want that either. Um, but, you know, whether you're a progressive state or a not a progressive state, um, it doesn't seem to matter. Because um, Illinois, uh, theoretically, is a more progressive state. But what does that mean? Does it mean we, we preserve more land? No, there's just a, there's a, there's the same pressures uh, in Illinois as there are everywhere in the country. And that's, you know, pr- pressures to develop progress. Progress is, um, is, is a dirty word in some respects uh, because progress usually means get rid of the natural area. And that's not to progress to me, and I'm sure it's not progress to you, Amanda. But we can, there are, there are ecologically responsible ways in some cases to, uh, to have both. And so we're trying to have that conversation as well and um, certainly have people who uh, may just get a lot of, a lot of influence um, that is new to them. I mean, there's, in many cases, it's just, it's been, you've been told to do it a certain way, or you've been told that this is the right way to go. We we challenge that um, as much as we can, not just through Steve and I, but um, we are indebted to the folks that pick up that torch and educate um, uh, broadly. And I want to mention that Amanda is co-founder of Indiana Nature LLC, also a former president of the North Chapter of the Indiana Native Plant and Wild... No, your Central Chapter uh, of the Indiana Native Plant and Wildflower Society. Um, You live in Hamilton County, Indiana. How far down is Hamilton County? It is just north of our state capital, which is Marion County, which is Indianapolis. So we're just the county north of there. So it's pretty well central. Uh, um, so if, if, if you're going up to Lydic, Bog, how long does it take you to get there? It's about two hours. Yikes. Straight up. Straight that's up com- 31. That's commitment Street. to get there. Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't get up there near, you know, very often, but it is nice to get to, to visit. Well, I appreciate the fact you came up to, to take uh, Kathleen and me on that tour. And by the way, uh, Amanda is also the superintendent of natural resources and education for Hamilton County Parks. Um, Steve is, uh, as we mentioned, co-founder of Indiana Nature LLC, a small business owner. Uh, you could, you're, it says in, in your bio, in South Bend, you're not technically in South Bend, are you? No, just west of South Bend. I'm in uh, unincorporated St. Joe County. Okay, but well, what's the town there that uh, we came, where we got our ice cream? New Carlisle. New Carlisle. I couldn't remember it. New Carlisle. Uh, but don't you live in that area? Are you not in New Carlisle? I, I have a New Carlisle um, a, a mailing address and a South Bend phone number. So, ah, okay. Um, in one okay. of those areas. <laughs> uh, if you and, say New Carlisle, nobody knows where it is. If you say South Bend, people know where you are. Yeah. Or if, you, if I said St. Joe County, they would say well, we're in St. Joe County. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, also a former president of the North Chapter of the Indiana Native Plant and Wildflower Society. Now, is that different from the Indiana Native Plant Society? That's its previous name. They've, they've uh, eliminated and wildflower. 
uh, a couple of okay. years ago. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'm glad to hear that because I was looking <laughs> it up and, and trying to do a link to the blog post. And I went, yeah. I can't find the Indiana uh, Native Plant and Wildflower yeah. Society, uh, but right. I couldn't find the other. Um, I think uh, Amanda's frozen, by the yeah, way. Yeah, we just lost her light. It looks like her power went out. That's weird. Um, uh, well, we've got you here, Steve. So, uh, I want to get to, I hope, uh, she, uh, she comes back. She, I bet she'll try to, to, to log back in. So Steve, yeah. what I want to do is look at some of the videos, uh, that we took, uh, at some point I'm going to put together a little presentation that I'm going to pop on to YouTube. Uh, but given we've described where Lydic Bog is uh, south of US-20, you're going to see it in, a, in just a second. Um, and this was our uh, introduction to Lydic Bog uh, when Kathleen and I went on the tour with the two of you. I'm going to show a few of these. We'll show some photos. Um, and then once we get out of this, uh, I'll let you comment on, on what we're looking at. skirting the northern edge of the wetland here and um, there you can kind of see some of the wetland plants in there red maples and pussy willows and there's also some bad things in there phragmites australis common reed and some cattails um, but we're the area that we're standing in is is formerly an agriculture field which is coming back on its own in in many spots but some of it was uh, seeded as well. Some of it was also seeded and planted in um, in tree saplings, and so eventually this will uh, succeed back to forest. But in the meantime, we'll have grassland, and so it'll support some grassland species. But historically, it would have been forest, and so that's where we're trying to get back to. And as we're seeing behind you, that's US 20. So that's uh, it's a popular route going into South Bend, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's still a two-lane, fortunately, but that's the original one of the original stretches of the Lincoln Highway that's behind us. Now, have there been fights to try to uh, widen it? Uh, no, thankfully. There's State Road 2, which runs parallel to 20, um, to the south, which is a four-lane road. And so most of the heavy truck traffic uh, takes State Road 2 instead of 20. But... Hopefully now I live on stay on, on um, US 20, so uh, I hope it stays two lane. The trail that we just walked through here and this trail to kind of break up the monotony of walking through the ag field. We're now cutting through um, this little forested area, and this is a I guess I would I would call it a wet forest, and it has some of the uh, the typical trees that you would find would be like a red red maple trees. We also have some nice black cherries in here. This was very heavily uh, overrun with Asian bush honeysuckle, and we'll see piles of it stacked up here and there where they, um, where the Shirley Hines Land um, Trust has done restoration work here. In here, you can see, as you look around, you'll see piles, just to give an idea of how much stuff was actually taken out of here. Yeah, and this was really, you know, this this portion of the property here's the garlic mustard. Um, yeah, get rid of the garlic mustard. Yeah, you know, I, and the thing with garlic mustard is you really have to bag these things. I'll put it in the back here. Okay. You really have to bag them because they, um, we're, we're going to come across like a million more garlic mustards, and then I'm going to be wondering, like, why am I even bothering with, with this one? Not to get your hair right here. Um, but this this portion of the property was one that was really kind of a bonus. Really, it was the the the, the key feature of this property was the bog. But this high quality 
upland woods and lowland woods that we're walking through here was really an added bonus to it. We've got may apples, obviously. We'll, we'll see more wildflowers as we move along here. You know, they're much better behaved out here than they are in my backyard. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually, they behave much the same way, but we don't have that kind of room. Well, that's true. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, Peggy, uh, I saw the report on uh, Amanda. What's the story there? Were you in touch with her? Yeah, she has no internet yet, so she's the building power... she's in. The power dipped, and I guess the router went down. So you know, Steve, this internet. is this is what happens when you live in Indiana, right? Uh, yeah, and this is what always impresses me about this show is that you can pull this stuff off without a hiccup. <laughs> no, there's not a well. No, there's a hiccup, right? Oh, look well, at this. I know, yeah, but, but but you're such a professional. Like I would be, you know, freaking out. Well, yeah, um, I'm freaking yeah, out. I, I to, no, I you're, to Amanda, you didn't miss anything. You you went you went away for a little bit. We showed a video, and boom, you're back. So welcome back, uh, Steve. Were you gonna Were you gonna comment on on the video? Yeah. Yes. I wanted to um, clarify, first of all, I mean, to address the question of why, why we're an LLC. So I want to just make sure that everybody understands that um, the Leidig Bog is a Shirley Hines Land Trust property. Uh, Indiana Nature LLC is completely outside of that. That's just a, our educational, um, environmental educational initiative that um, Amanda and I do. So uh, I do serve a, a, on the advisory council for Shirley Hines Land Trust, and I am a big supporter of that organization, but they deserve all of the credit and the, the kudos for um, everything that has been done at, at Leidig Bog. I was just one of the people who was lucky enough to be able to find it. Um, all right. But going to that, that I mean, commenting on the, the video that we just watched, yeah, that was part of the upland area, and that was as I mentioned in the video, that was a bonus. Um, the, the real jewel of this property was the bog itself, but to be able to get uh, almost 200 acres of other high quality woods and um, we have some of those former ag fields that we looked at, those have been replanted in uh, with tree saplings a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. and then they also seeded it with prairie plants. And so what we'll have there is some succession that will take place right now we have plants that were already in the seed bank that are coming back on their own we have seeds from some of the prairie plants that shirley hines land trust planted and then we have some of these tree saplings come so if you come back 50 years from now it's actually going to be a forest or a young forest at that point yeah uh, you know this is the thing about uh people who do restoration work and i've said this many times about Medewin National Tall Grass Prairie is that it started, they started work on it in 1997, and a lot of the people who are doing that even to today will never see what uh, it is ultimately going to look like. And the same thing with an area like uh, Lydic Bog is that you start the work and you hope that uh, uh, successive generations can continue the work until it has some measure of uh, biological diversity that it might have had at one time. Um, Amanda, uh, given that uh, the bonus area, the, those uh, forested areas, uh, they're home to a, a lot of species. We saw some of them. We're going to take a look um, uh, in, in a few minutes uh, at that. But uh, comment a little bit on the variety of uh, insect, bird, mammal species that you see there. Well, the 
first off, the, the whole ecosystem is supported by those native plants and those plants that in many cases have, you know, high ecological value um, and even moderate ecological value. So the diversity list there just in plants alone is so high that it's only going to support a large amount of of biodiversity um, through the food chain, so or food web, really. Um, so all of those plants um, host their, you know, they they essentially support all kinds of insects um, and uh, life in general. Certainly, we didn't see any amphibians and reptiles, but I assume there's tons of uh, lots of great species there. I know the Badlands turtle was, um, or uh, one of the the turtle species. I know that is uh, has a state blandings. Landings, yes, thank you. So it has uh, state recognition, so it's there. Um, but the insects, all of the different life is then supports higher things in the food web. So we, um, I brought my binoculars and a few of us had some. And so uh, birds, we were there in mid-May, early May, and which is really one of the most phenomenal times uh, through the Midwest for bird migration. Um, some, a few of the species that we saw will actually breed there, we mentioned, but some will just, some are just passing through mm -hmm. and we only have a couple days to really see them. And uh, certainly a habitat like Lydic is going to be critical for them to have uh, that ability then to move north into, in some cases, way up into the boreal forest of Canada uh, where they're going to breed. Right. And uh, we should mention, if you're looking at this, you're saying it's not very lush. Well, it was early May. Um, and, and that's what you have to take into consideration. In fact, now you just went there. Did you say this morning, Steve? Yeah. Uh, yeah. and I'll bet a lot of that has changed. It's leafed out a lot more, I would guess. It sure has. Yeah. I saw a lot of things that we didn't see just a few weeks ago. Uh, well, we'll, we'll come back and we'll have to see him. All right. You were, you were mentioning some of the birds we saw here. So Amanda, let, let me play this. Cause, uh, okay. this, this made, uh, this definitely made Kathleen's day. All right, okay. at, at, at the Lydic Bog. Yeah, here. It's Scarlet Tanager, and I see it. Okay, good. And I see it right there. <laughs> good. Can I so see it? Yes, I absolutely. See it? It's a Scarlet Tanager. So this bird is scarlet red with black wings. Um, they actually oh, my. Good. I'm glad you see it. They do breed here in Indiana. Oh, my goodness. Um, so unlike some warblers and things that are... Okay, here's a red start moving in, too, yeah, actually. Um so um this one's gonna be oh gosh it this moved. is a, a this is like a feast of uh visuals okay. so while well, the red start and or sorry the, we got the tanager just moved this yeah the red start just moved just about up above it they okay, are black and it. orange yeah. it's so a bird they about are half the size yeah <laughs> and they're black and orange they look like kind of a Halloween. all right the halloween bird is what you say uh yeah, before yeah, uh, we I didn't see it. I wasn't able to get the camera on there. But, I, you know, I'm stunned that my little cell phone uh, managed to zoom in on the Scarlet Tanager. Good, good uh, camera work there, Mike. Well, thank you. Uh, and if you really want to see what it looks like, this is it. Okay. Um, Amanda, you're the one well, who said... it's not the same bird, but... No, yeah. it's not. <laughs> no, I... Right. Uh, <laughs> did you take this photo, Steve? No, that's Amanda's, I believe. That one's mine. Oh, that's this is you, Amanda. Well, yeah. all right. All right, you get a ding. It, it, 
Oh, we could, we could, uh, we could critique it all day, but I, I got, I got this bird in, in the camera at one point. So, yeah, no, oh, listen, it's a great shot, and uh, as you said, they put cardinals to shame. I'm not sure they mm-hmm. do, but um, uh, yeah. why, why would you say that? Well, the this bird looks like it's glowing from the inside mm-hmm. out. I mean, the the color a cardinal is a more standard red, um, and it, I mean it's gorgeous. Gosh, if we lost cardinals, uh, you know, we'd all be really sad. And I think some of us have worked with people who come from other places in the world, um, even the United States, who don't get cardinals, and they're 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 as excited to see them as what we are, the scarlet tanager. But um, it this bird is just gorgeous in, in the contrast with the black and the red. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a it's a beautiful bird and it, it has a real tropical feel. It does spend its, um, its winters in the tropics. So it's an exciting bird. It does breed here in Indiana and, um, and Kathleen's reaction, I, it brings a tear to my eye watching the video. Cause I don't think I'd seen all of that. Um, that's, you know, I think birds get a lot of attention and there's, there's stunning creatures through the entire food web, but um, birds have that ability to really just, be an unbelievable experience for folks and um, one of my you know favorite things is providing that if I can and and um, you know really not just I mean it's it's getting them on the bird and when she said I can see it that oh that's perfect (laughs) you know that to me is just such a, a gratification that um, we can we can share that moment with folks, so it it makes it more exciting, really, for me than even the bird itself. All right, you you yeah. have to you have to tell the tale of the guy um, that <laughs> that you took out to to on the hike and the and oh. Scarlet Tanager. I can make it quick, but I do. I have led hikes here at Cool Creek for a year or at the nature center where I work in Hamilton County. And one one gentleman rolls up, you know, in his car and he gets out and he has a cane and um, he looks elderly, but I, I wouldn't have guessed guessed his age. But he um, before we started, he shook my hand and he said, um, I am 92 years old. And I said, oh, wow, you know, thanks for coming on the hike. And he says, and I want to see a scarlet tanager before I die. And uh, so the pressure was on at that point to get a bird, to get the scarlet tanager for him that day. And if it had been the wrong time of year, I mean, these guys aren't necessarily here uh, for more than maybe about four months of the year. So um, luckily the time of year was right. And um, I, I was sweating to get that bird. And we did. We got. We didn't get great looks at it. We didn't get the kind of looks that we had at Lydic, but um, he did see that bird. And I hope he's still alive and well and enjoying his sight. <laughs> and has seen more scarlet tanagers. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're going to be breaking here in just a second. Uh, what other uh, birds? Uh, oh, you said the birds there for about four months. So what times of the year will you see a scarlet tanager in those woods? Um, scarlet tanagers generally probably about the end of April. And then um, they'll be, you could definitely see them through probably August for sure. And maybe, maybe early September until they start to migrate south. Okay, so that is this the northern end of their range? Um, Steve, I don't know. Is um, if they go that far north, we'd have to probably. I don't know that I checked. My guess I'm is yes. I'm looking at the map right now. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of them tend go. to migrate further north too. What's that, Peggy? A lot of them tend to migrate further north. Yeah, well, that's what I was wondering. Is it you know? But if they yeah, stay here, they they will. I mean, they. The, the breeding range for them um, is anywhere from like the middle of Alabama um, on the south to 
like lower Ontario in the north. So, okay. yeah, I'd say, you know, Michigan and, and this part of the area is probably considered more of the, you know, one quarter of its northern range. Yeah. Right. It, you know, because, as we know, uh, a lot of birds will just stop here and then they're up into northern Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. And who knows why you they know, want to go to northern Canada. Hey, it's such a great place here in <laughs> Illinois and Indiana. Um, one of the things that's so important, Mike, about having these habitats protected is that we just we as humans have taken everything, all of the habitat, other than these little postage stamp pieces. And if we want to be able to to keep these animals, we have to at least keep some property for them. We can't convert the whole world to um, housing and agriculture and strip malls and things like that. We're, we'll just lose these these amazing animals. Amen, brother. All right, uh, that's uh, Steve Sass. Uh, there's Amanda Smith. Uh, and uh, guess what? We have bonus Steve and Amanda time um, because I haven't <laughs> nearly gotten to show everything that uh, I wanted to show on this program. So please stick around. Um, I hope you're having a good time and, and do write your comments and questions uh, uh, in our chat room and we'll be happy to uh, send them to Steve and Amanda. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Stick around. There's more to come. Hey, Vic Nakashima here at Bartlett Tree Experts. And today I'm out here in the field with Scott Anderson, certified arborist. Scott, what are we doing today? We are injecting ash tree to protect them from the emerald ash borer. The emerald ash borer was first found in the United States in 2002, accidentally brought over from Asia in woodpacking material. Since then, this pest has spread to nearly all native areas of its preferred host, the ash tree. All native ash are susceptible, and they can die within one to three years of the initial attack. The damage comes from the larvae, which hatch and bore through the bark into the sapwood. Then as they grow, they chew S-shaped galleries into the phloem and cambium, severely damaging the tree's vascular system. So how do you treat for such a pest? Well, today what we're doing is we're actually injecting the ash trees on this property. Uh, So we're actually drilling holes in around the root flare of the tree, setting a plug in there with a little diaphragm, and we actually fill those plugs with a material. That material goes up through the tree, and for two years at a time, it protects the tree from the emerald ash tree. You're actually drilling into the tree to put the material into the vascular system. Yep. The material we inject into the stem works its way up the tree and makes the tissue beneath the bark toxic for the ash borer without causing unintentional harm to pollinators and other wildlife. So the method of injecting, is there anything beneficial about that method? Yeah, so the material's only going into this tree. It's not going to affect anything else around it. Um, Whereas if you were spraying, you got to watch wind and also what's around because you don't want the material you're spraying to affect beneficials or get onto you know, plants that aren't yours, could be your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, or patio furniture. Patio furniture, anything. Kids, pets. Vegetable garden. Vegetable garden. All right, so that's it for now. I want to thank Scott for his time and telling us all about injecting ash trees to treat for the emerald ash borer. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sipson of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by... Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. 
All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root of bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. Give me all that I can take. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're talking to Steve Sass and Amanda Smith from uh, Indiana Nature LLC. And uh, as I mentioned before, this is bonus time. And uh, it, there's just so much to discuss. And I want to make sure we get to your uh, the uh, the website and and the things you're, you're you're trying to do at the website as well because there's there's a really uh, a, a lot of cool stuff involving uh, ecological literacy, as you call it, uh, which is I- important. And among the things uh, I, I want to get to is the Great American Indiana Nature Projects, or GAIN, G-A-I-N, uh, and you have them in various areas, and, and we definitely want to talk about that. But I want to get back to uh, our tour of uh, Lydic Bog and... Uh, this is uh, moving further on. As you can see, we start off in the agricultural fields, and then we get into the, the forest and higher ground, and then it gets to lower ground, and eventually we'll get to the, the bog. So let's look at uh, another stop along the way. This particular wetland is kind of neat. Um, you can see a, a whole bunch of um, large-leaf green plants over here, and those are skunk cabbage. That's what I thought. I was say I was going to say, are those skunk cabbage? you yeah. got to be kidding me, man. Skunk, skunk cabbage is, is a wetland plant that we normally find. You're about to... Oh, no, that's not one. Okay. Um, the, there are just one here that's kind of close by. Um, that one doesn't have um, any fruit on it. Some of those uh, out there uh, surely do, but we'd have to go slogging through the mud probably to get to them. But there's those... Kind of a large population of them over there. Uh, incidentally, one of the here's here's a uh, a burning bush, right? This is another one that we plant in our gardens because they look pretty, uh, but we don't realize that they're actually escaping and being spread by the birds and uh, invading these natural ecosystems. Also, if we were to go farther over this way, one of the uh, the problematic invasive plants over there um, is privet. Uh, our garden hedges that um, have also escaped and also spread by birds. And so that's another one that they're working on controlling uh, along the edges of the wetlands over here. But skunk cabbage is a really cool plant. It's one that produces its own heat through a process called thermogenesis. And so we can see it, the flower buds literally emerging right through the snow um, and sometimes in some events. And it has a, uh, a pungent odor to it. and. The purpose of the odor is to attract carrion-eating insects that are awakening at the same time that the animals that may have died over the winter are beginning to decompose. And uh, they actually, the, the smell that's emitted by skunk cabbage contains the same chemical, which is cadaverine, um, which is uh, the same smell as a, of a rotting corpse. Uh, so, <laughs> nice. Yeah, not, not very pleasant, but uh, but it, it does a. But they're cool. They're very cool, and they do an effective job um, in the ecosystem. This is one of those plants that it's not a a true ephemeral plant. As you can see, the leaves are quite large on those, and they'll emerge after the flowers do. And um, unlike other things like spring beauty and toothworts, these leaves will continue to grow, and, um, and they'll linger throughout 
most of the summer with the idea that growing really large will help them to photosynthesize um, as much as possible once the tree canopy fills in and there's not the amount of sunlight here anymore. And the flower that uh, emerges is a spathe, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's in the Arum family, uh, Araceae family, so it's, uh, it's a spadix surrounded by a spathe and um, the spadix has the, uh, the flowers arranged on the cluster and that helps to keep it warm. Um, the spate which, which surrounds it. So it's related to uh, Jack in the Pulpit would be another one, and um, the Arums. Um, but yeah, it's a great, it's one of our first, if not the first, spring wildflower to emerge uh, in late winter. All right. Um, and I think the lesson to, well, obviously there's a lesson about skunk cabbage, which are, as we both noted, very cool plants. Um, and these are very different. Pa- Kathleen and I are familiar with skunk cabbage from um, a property we had out in the Pacific Northwest with the, the yellow, beautiful yellow spadix, uh, which is unlike what happens in the Midwest. It's, it's much, uh, wait, and I've got a, a photo of it here, very different from uh, what you see in the Midwest. Hold on, here we go. And that is this. Uh, this is the skunk cabbage in, from the Midwest. Um, but uh, the other lesson to be taken out of this is uh, what Steve was showing me, the plants that we put as ornamentals in our backyards and our gardens end up in forested areas. And I, I uh, we saw just there burning bush. Um, you, you mentioned privet. We saw barberry in the forest. And these are all plants Folks that uh, that they sell to this day at garden centers, you can't get them to stop selling them. Uh, we're uh, you and I mentioned uh, Steve uh, talking about uh, invasive plants, calorie pear, Bradford pears, and those sorts of things. And that is the law you mentioned earlier. Tell us about the law in South Bend. Yes, so I'll start by ta- talking about the. Um the DNR terrestrial plant rule in Indiana. So when you said that some of these plants or these plants are still available, actually of the ones that you mentioned, of the four that you mentioned, uh, three of them are still available statewide. The one that's not um, because the Indiana Natural Resources Commission approved a, uh, what they called the Indiana terrestrial plant rule in, in 2019, which prohibited the sale of um, 44, I believe, species of terrestrial plants that are considered to be highly invasive in um, the Indiana, in Indiana as defined by the Indiana Invasive Species Council. So one of those is Japanese barberry. So you cannot legally purchase or plant Japanese barberry in the state of Indiana anymore. Uh, What we did in South Bend, and this actually sort of started even before the Indiana terrestrial plant rule, um, going back to 2018, um, I started an initiative in South Bend to write uh, um, vegetation ordinances in the city code to prohibit the sale, planting, transfer of all of the plants that are listed by the Indian Invasive Species Council as being invasive. So that includes high, medium, low, and even the caution species. So of those four species that you mentioned, you mentioned Japanese um, barberry, burning bush, calorie pear, and um, what was the other Privet, one? Privet. Privet, 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 right. And there are several species of privet, but um, all of those are now prohibited in South Bend. Um, and hopefully other communities will 
follow our lead on that. Um, most of these things are not sold uh, in the nursery trade. Well, those those four still are. Um, oh yeah, yeah. But like when you look at the Indiana industrial plant rule, I mean, a lot of the things like you know garlic mustard that's that's not clearly not sold in the plant trade, but. But some there were some exceptions. There were two, actually two exceptions from the Indiana Terrestrial Plant Rule of highly invasive species that the state removed from the list, which were calorie pear and Norway maple, uh, out of concern for the uh, financial damage to the, the growers. Unfortunately, but, you um, know, uh, the, I, I'm I'm going to tell you something right now. The growers. Whoops. Uh, and speaking of, um, I wasn't going to pop that up, but I might as well. Uh, here's another one. The uh, multiflora rose. Um, swamp rose. I'm sorry. That's the native swamp rose. Oh, that's the native swamp rose. Okay, I'm that's sorry. It. All right, you had uh, uh, sent me that, and uh, you were talking about. Uh, but another one invasive is the multiflora rose that uh, uh, you find all over, and you had to clear a lot of that out of there. I was looking at that. And I go, that looks awfully nice. That that how <laughs> could that? How can you consider this invasive? That's that's just lovely. So uh, that's one of the plants that we we saw on the boardwalk you'll be showing later. Yeah, uh, great. Um, and I've completely lost my train of thought on this. So, uh, but... <laughs> We're so, talking about the invasive um, plant um, bands but, and the growers. And oh, yeah. Your thoughts on, on the growers. Yeah, and, they, and their deal is that um, they're always saying, give us another five years. We have inventory. We need to get rid of it. Except that the five years turns into 10, it turns into 15, and they're still selling that stuff. And you know, and, and if you go to a box store, you're, that's really where you're going to find it. What do you see when you go to a box store? You see Barberry, you see Burning Bush, you see Privet, um, you see Calorie Pear, you see all of that stuff. Um, you know, go to your independent garden center, and some of those Folks still sell it too, but they're smarter about it. I'm I'm hoping that the and and I'll bet our our friend Dan Costa is watching and he can chime in on this as well. But you know, uh, unfortunately, we've left it up to individuals to be smart about what they plant in their landscape so they don't end up invading um, uh, natural areas like this. And you mentioned uh, the uh, the rose, uh, how that was a government project. Uh, that was introduced into the United States by our own government, wasn't it? Yep. And, um, well, a lot of things were. Um, back in the, the 1890s, there was really a, a push to to get, bring in Asian plants to uh, deal with some of the massive erosion issues that we had caused by poor farming practices. And as a result, we wound up having things like multiflora rose and autumn olive is another one that was recommended by the Soil Conservation Service as late as and, and also bush honeysuckle um, for for wildlife values. So the government hasn't always been right on these things, <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we have to keep that in mind, I guess. So we, we do our own research and um, and part of what we're doing our big push is environmental education. And so, and because frankly, you know, Mike, like you can talk to Doug Tallamy um, and he'll say in one of his, um, in one of his talks, I remember him saying that we, we've gardened this way because we didn't know that we didn't need to change. Like we didn't know that we had to worry about what plants we were putting in and that's why we've done it. And so um, I don't think most people set out to go about destroying the ecosystem. No. They just don't realize that they're doing it. 
Well, and they still don't. But but here's 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 the problem with that: that people in the business now know this. They know it. So what they're doing is harmful. All right. Uh, Average gardeners, many of them still don't know because they don't read this stuff. And I hope they're watching this program so they they do understand this. You know, uh, Jerry Carlson just wrote, by the way, he says the peony is the Indiana state flower because, well, you, you, you turn it over to legislators who say, yeah, let's make the peony the state flower, even though it, 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 it comes from half a world away. And that's one of the things you talk about on your website, even the peony. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the funny story about the peony is that it was the it's actually the fourth of the Indiana state flowers, mm-hmm. the fourth and the last. Um, it was made state flower in 1957, and the, the 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 reason for that, the believed reason for that, was one of the members of the Indiana legislature um, was a peony grower. <laughs> oh my! So See, and this is and this is how laws are made. Okay, uh, it's this special is... interests. Yeah, it's all special interests in many cases. So, and not and not public interest. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I totally agree. They know they know the harms that these are having on the environment. There's no benefit. I mean, they're not, they're not providing park staff with the equipment or money or personnel to fight these plants at this point that they've brought in. And these are cheap plants. I mean, the, the fact that, that they're, they're making money hand over fist uh, on these species in particular, because many don't have many different pests and disease because they're new to the environment and the, nothing knows how to, um, you know, how to create that needed ecological balance and that give and take. Um, so it, it's, it's unbelievable that people are profiting off of this, in my opinion. Uh, and I agree. And so if I had to, uh, this is uh, out of left field, I'm sucker punching both of you. What would be the state flower if you could change it today? We've actually talked about them. My choice would be Asclepias tuberosa butterfly milkweed. I would agree. I think we need a plant that we can grow, um, you know, in our landscape. Uh, going back to one of the things that Dr. Tallamy talks about, I think it's important that we can, then the, the peony does that. So people can grow that at home. Uh, and uh, But it's really not providing a whole lot of benefit at all. It's so, not the uh, state plant. I'm sorry. It, no, it has nothing a- to do with Indiana, except that some grower had it there and, and had a connection to the legislature. All right. right. The, it, no, no, it's got to go. All right. Yeah. Uh, there was an effort a few years ago to create a new growing called state wildflower, and that was the that Eclipius tuberoso um, was the one that was tapped for that. Uh, that eventually didn't move. Um, I personally was not in favor of that because the idea was that they would leave the peony as state flower and then create a second category. I think the peony needs to go. <laughs> Yeah, it does. It just, I, I, I mean, there's no point in, in having it there. All right. All right. All of me, Mike, that we're a, um, uh, we're a patriotic society and we, we fly the, the stripes on the fly and then we celebrate a Chinese plant as our state flower, which seems crazy. Uh, there's a lot of craziness in the world. All right. All, all of what uh, we've been doing is kind of a setup. I'm sure folks are saying, well, where's the bog? We haven't seen the bog. Well, you walk through the woods, you walk through this path. And that's one of the wonderful things about going out to Lydic Bog. If you take the long way, you get to enjoy all this nature. And then you get to see uh, hints of the bog coming. You see those streams and and lower areas. You move down, and then you get to a boardwalk. And we'll talk about this because this was just built 
last year. In fact, if you go to my blog post, I found the um, a video of putting the boardwalk together. I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube, uh, Steve and Amanda. Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, that was our friend Mark Blasage that did that. Yeah. All right. And this gets us uh, uh, on the boardwalk here, uh, walking out into the bog. But here we are. This is um, this was the, the habitat that we eventually arrived at back in 2014. And we step and look at all the tamarack trees that are out here. There's evergreen trees. Right. That that, right in the middle of the bog. That your friend saw from outer space he on did. a satellite. He actually did. I can attest to that. So when they were building this platform, they had to try to figure out what the substrate was like here. And so they had a pole, um, that the poles that linked together, that they, were, that they sent down um, through the mat. And they figured out that the mat is about three feet thick. So like even those trees are growing on only a three foot tall, a three foot thick mat that's on top of water. And when they pierced through the mat, they um, kept adding sections to the pole until they hit bottom. And they didn't hit bottom until they got to about 30 feet. Holy so smoke. So when, when we were walking around out here, we were literally you know walking on a three foot tall mat that's on top of 30 feet of of a glacial lake so it's pretty amazing um and then we've also got um gosh other interesting plants there are pitcher plants that are out here although um, they're not they purposely built the boardwalk um, not right next to them and it's unfortunate um, that people aren't able to see them but it also helps protect the plants from um, being poached and, sure um, and hopefully the the three foot tall mat on top of 30 feet of water or the realization that there's 30 feet of water underneath here is also enough to keep people from wanting to jump off of the the top of the, the platform here um, there's also in addition to the high bush blueberry there's a leather leaf is here also uh, which is another shrub in the ericaceae family or the heath family the flowers look very similar to blueberries and then also there um, there's a cranberry here also of course <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. cranberries and bogs go kind of hand in hand yeah they do they? don't so, they yeah so this is really uh, uh, an amazing thing that this was not known about really uh, for you know, there's a, a dragonfly down there it looks like an eastern amber amber uh, man to take a look at this that's not an eastern amber I don't know what that butterfly or dragonfly is did you guys ever identify that uh, dragonfly um steve did i believe yes and um painted skimmer oh yeah like which is one that i've never seen before uh, i have either uh, and here's another plant that uh, is nearby, which will, in, and we'll talk about the boardwalk in a second, but this will keep people from jumping off of the boardwalk. Uh, Steve, what are we looking at? That is a poison sumac, and um, it contains a, the same chemical as poison ivy, erucial, but in even higher concentrations. And that was one of the plants that we had to make our way through as we were getting into the bog for the first time and 
there's very poor footing in there with the the water and the hydrology and, and really nothing to grab onto um, other than poison sumac or swamp rose. But it's a beautiful shrub. It's um, it's found only really in high quality wetland areas. So if you see poison sumac, you have a nice property typically. Uh, well, it, that's good to hear, but also uh, uh, a little hard Guardian to deal with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so if you're thinking of jumping off of that thing, uh, don't. All right. <laughs> Uh, and, and, uh, which takes us to the, the issue that, uh, you and I talked about when we were out there, Steve, which is the, 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 the building of that uh, platform. And there's another one that goes across that'll get you out there. So you can go very quickly from the parking lot to see the bog. Uh, there's good and bad uh, in that. Do you want to explain, uh, how that works? Well, the objective is to be able to provide access to people to be able to see these amazing places that, as you mentioned, um, some folks would never get a chance to see in their lifetimes um, with the minimum of impact to the environment there because it is incredibly sensitive. And the, the bog itself really shows no signs of having any sort of human activity taking place in it. Uh, you know, obviously, the boardwalk is there now, but um, but for example, like there's hardly any signs of invasive plants in the bog. And, um, you know, bringing, bringing people into a sensitive ecosystem like that just means that there is a heightened responsibility of stewardship to make sure that uh, things aren't coming in on on people's uh, shoes or on their, their the fur of their pets um, that can get into that very sensitive ecosystem and um, and disrupt things fairly quickly. But now that path that you were just describing, there's the new path that leads to the boardwalk out there is an ADA accessible path. So there's a, a gravel trail there and it has to be with ADA compliance. It has to be a certain width. Uh, it has to be a certain slope. So this allows people with perhaps with mobility issues to be able to get out there and see something that's incredibly beautiful and rare. Um, but it, it does have to be you know, done um, in, in a balance, of course. And that's, that's one of the challenges for places that uh, land trusts, for example, that, that protect properties like this is to um, balance the, um, the human side of things with the ecological side of things. And um, land trust will will make the argument that people uh, and this there's a quote on uh, this might be another E.O. Wilson quote, Amanda. Like we don't know, we don't we don't care about what we don't know, um, which is really the case. You know, if and for people to be able to recognize this as being something that is worthy of protection requires them to be able to learn about it. Uh, and, and as you say, there's, there's good and bad and part of the good, um, as I think I mentioned to you when we were out there is that this is how you get donations. This is how you get grants to purchase more of the area because people can easily walk out and see the magnificence of this bog and the unspoiled nature of it and say, you know what? I want it to stay like this. Um, here's some cash. And, um, that's, a, a you know, a, a capitalistic way of looking at things, but this is how we roll in the 21st century. This is how we save areas like that. 
And it's not even uh, just cash necessarily. So for example, there is a neighbor uh, about a half a mile away from Leidig Bog that saw the work that Shirley Hines has done to that property in protecting it and in removing the invasive species. And this particular neighbor uh, recently donated, uh, um, I wanna say it's a 20 acre or so wood uh, to them. Wow. And so these things kind of have this uh, almost a domino effect where, you know, now you have now you have two properties in this area and other neighbors have ex have also expressed interest in um, bequeathing property to um, to the land trust as well. And so if you can continue to grow on that, the larger that you're able to grow this area, the more buffers that you have um, in isolating the bog from development and from bad things. Uh, before we go, uh, Amanda, I want to talk, as I mentioned before, about the, the website um, mm -hmm. at uh, at uh, Indiana Nature LLC and the the work you've do, you're doing there uh, in terms of fighting what you call ecological illiteracy, um, and that's really a, a good way of putting it. We did, we don't, just don't teach that enough anymore and that's what the site is trying to do and tell us a little bit about the great american indiana projects uh, you focus on lepidoptera natural history and science resources trees and wildflowers um how did this come about um i think our certainly our facebook group which is above fourteen thousand now but um several years ago uh we were gaining uh group members and people were posting some amazing sightings uh plants animals uh, insects all kinds of things that were state rare state endangered um or just just plain cool and uh social media is such that it's it's very kind of visible for a little bit and then it's buried. And so um, we wanted to, I think, first and foremost, provide an opportunity to kind of capture some of these sightings, uh, the photographs, amazing photographers that are within the group, um, and also non-photographers, just like myself, cell phone warriors out there taking as good of photos as we can. So uh, we wanted to provide that. Steve and I both had an interest in moths, which is a weird um, interest. And so, and uh, spurred on by Doug Talamay's book and regarding Lepidoptera and how important they are to ecosystem, you know, feeding and birds and everything else. So uh, we had both separately got into moth um, identification and uh, that turned out to be our first uh, gain project. So uh, the Great American Indiana Nature uh, Projects. And again, we're quoting E.O. Wilson continually, but there's a quote, I probably won't repeat it completely right, but, um, you know, if you, um, essentially you have to provide um, an opportunity to participate in something for people really, I think, to um, to to really feel a part of it. And so the GAIN projects, uh, both with wildflowers and with Lepidoptera, with somewhat trees, um, is we want them to find these species. We'll help you identify it. We'll help you learn every way that Native Americans used it to how it was used in early colonial times and how to grow it, how to propagate it. And then most importantly, like take the trees and the wildflowers, what eats it? What does it support in the ecosystem? Um, and so plants uh, provide that, that step then to, to insects and in this case, we would love to do a project on beetles and dragonflies and all of these other species. But right now we're focusing on Lepidoptera 
uh, with the help of over, you know, uh, over 1,300 different uh, folks who have have provided sightings of both, both moth and butterflies. We um, have cataloged now uh, over, well, over 1,900 species of uh, moths and butterflies in the state of Indiana, um, which is great. We have uh, one species, we've said several were new to the state, whether or not they were here and just not discovered. Obviously, moth identification is somewhat specialized, so I think a lot of people just haven't been looking. But um, we did find uh, <laughs> we uh, dug. They're not uh, trying hard enough, okay? You're so not yeah, trying hard. Yeah. So we have one species of butterfly that had been uh, uh, thought to be uh, extirpated from the state. There was a historic records, but was rediscovered in Lagrange County, so up north, um, but east of of South Bend um, was rediscovered called the silvery blue. Um, and this is a, a breeding population. And so we've had some great, I think we've had a lot of great successes. And we're providing a limited amount of, of science or maybe uh, it's not perfect data, but um, we're just asking people to be curious, take a photo of something, put it on the Facebook uh, group or email us or, um, you know, to contact us somehow and we'll help you identify uh, what we can. And then Wildflowers is the same type of uh, participatory project. I just saw a, uh, a comment from uh, one of our viewers who said drone footage would be cool. Um, have you guys thought about getting a drone out there? There, uh, I think they have done that. Oh, okay. The land truck has. Mm -hmm. All right, so may, I now some, I have I've seen some overhead images. Yeah. Oh well, it's a shame I didn't have any of that to, to show. But I do have one more thing before we let you go. This is how to survive uh, in the wilderness, uh, courtesy of uh, Amanda Smith. Amanda, would you pull up there? So this is jewelweed. It's young. Um, this is an annual. I don't know exactly which species of jewelweed it is. Possibly the pale jewelweed, which is impatience. Impatience capensis. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Steve's got a bee sting, so we're going to do a little right holistic treatment for oh. him. So we're going to take the jewelweed, and it's really young right now, so it won't have a lot, but we're going to slice it with my thumb down the middle, and it's got kind of a, a juicy, so we're going to open that and then rub that on his cut. So it's sort of like the Indiana aloe, but people, some people call it, but... It will it will stop the the itch of um, bee stings, but poison ivy, uh, sting nettle. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that Thank should you. feel better. It does actually. I can feel <laughs> the difference right away. Oh, <laughs> uh, so it 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 worked, eh, Steve? Mm -hmm. It really does work. Yes. Poison Isn't ivy it? remedy. Uh, yeah, it can be. It's important to point out it is a nature preserve, so I probably should have um, just let Steve suffer with his his bee sting <laughs> instead of uh, pulling up a species. Since uh, as a nature preserve, which is a very high distinction, um, it provides a lot of protection. So not something that we would want people to do in large quantities. But uh, again, I'm full of quotes today. But John Lewis's quote, you know, uh, good trouble. So we got in a little good trouble, uh, which I think uh, is a little bit like what Steve and and his and the whole group did when they discovered the place uh, more or less without 
without uh, a lot, you know, a lot of landowners um, time involved, but. Um, oh, so. listen, that, that, that never happened. That was just a reenactment <laughs> that we did. Okay. Oh, okay. Just, okay. We, we were actually uh, doing that. Uh, listen, out of my yard that you were that. I just carry it around most of the time. So, uh, uh, but uh, how much do you have? A lot of it back there, Peggy. I have some, yeah. Yeah, just comes yeah. up on its own. Oh, great! Uh, not- and there, it was—it's prolific at the bog, um, but it—it it is, and it's just—it's a fun plant. Um, you're you're round, but yeah, and it was small. And we well, and and while you're mentioning these things, uh, let's tell people that when you go to a natural area and there are paths, and they tell you to stay on the paths, please stay on the paths. Um, we did we did veered off a little bit uh, in the interest of science and in, in providing some information for this show, uh, but uh, be good stewards um, and mm-hmm. and and do observe the regulations at mm-hmm. uh, the various nature natural areas that you visit. Uh, any final soil compression you want to avoid in your garden, you want to avoid it at a, at a nature center too. That's right. Compaction, soil compaction. You're right. Good point. Um, anything, any final words, uh, from Steve and Amanda before we let you go? Um, I want to mention that you, Amanda touched on nature preserve. So Lighting Fog now does have the designation of, of an Indiana state dedicated nature preserve, which is the highest degree of protection that can be applied to a property at the state level, which essentially means that everything there is protected. There's no picking of mushrooms or flowers or anything, uh, no taking away of, of insects or everything that's done there has to be uh, very carefully uh, permitted through the Indiana uh, Department of Natural Resources Division of Nature Preserves. And um, and the other final thought is that, you know, going back to the whole ecological literacy thing, like we know that we are an ecologically illiterate society because take a look, if we take a look around us, um, we see uh, people unintentionally doing really terrible things to our environment. It's never a campaign issue and um, we just aren't getting the ecological education that we need, which is really why we started Indiana Nature um, to begin with and why we continue to do what we're doing is to try to continue to educate people. Maybe if we do this now, 30 years from now, we'll have a, a, a more ecologically literate society. Uh, and Great. Amanda, you got anything? Um, amen. Just share what you can. And, um, you know, it, it I, we live in a highly diverse ecosystem, especially here in the Midwest. It's Indiana. It's not necessarily flat and boring, um, even you know outside of the lake. It's an amazing place. And what we're trying to do through our projects and uh, through the education is to get people excited about where they live. And again, you're more likely to protect it if you really get excited about uh, the diversity that is is native and is um, is just right outside our door to find. All right. Fantastic. And of course, if you want more uh, information, just go to indiananature.net. Uh, if if you're on Facebook and you want to do this, you just go to In Nature uh, and uh, you can join. You can you can join the group. Uh, I hope some folks will have joined uh, because of watching this today. And I hope some people subscribe to our page. Go to the Mike Novak Show on YouTube. And uh, I hope uh, folks have su- subscribed to that. Uh, Steve Sass and Amanda Smith, thank you so much. What a what a Thanks wonderful that. conversation! And we got to do it again. Thanks to yes, both please. of you. It's a um, pleasure to be here after talking about this for so long. But, yeah, that you know. Uh, I, yeah. 
you've been watching. We always have ideas that we're 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 constantly coming up with with things that we want to do and and ideas and plans, and so we never run out of things to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it finally we hooked up and did this after all these years. And you know, I know you've been following the show <laughs> way too long. Uh, you need to find something uh, else. Of course, you you watched it when it was on Saturday nights, and you always liked that back when I was at uh, Gargantua Radio down the dial. Um, all right, uh, Steve and uh, Amanda, thank you so much. Uh, you guys have a, a great Sunday, and we'll talk very soon. Thank you thank very you. much. Pleasure being here. We've got uh, more coming up. Uh, it's the Mike Novak Show with uh, Peggy Malecki. Please stick around. I was pretty well considered an outlier and nuts. And today, after the nursery with the kids and everybody involved, is still considered groundbreaking in the sense that we do it just different. Over in a possibility place in 1978, by 1982, we were strictly into natives and have been ever since. The possibility place nursery grows more trees, shrubs, and perennials than I can count. Several hundred species from large shade trees to very small perennial plants. There is a native plant for every place in your yard from trees to shrubs to flowers and grasses. They flower just as pretty. They flower on time. They bring in butterflies. They make the yard more dynamic. And every time you do a planting is an opportunity to add a native or to integrate a native into your landscape and make it richer. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from Tinyo Biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. One of the keys to the success in being able to grow tomatoes all year long is our Procyon 2.0 light. We use a 17-inch Procyon light above each of the tomato plants, and it's a light which gives you the right intensity of light that's required to grow a tomato, as well as the right ratio of red to blue to green light to make the flowers properly blossom and to produce large amounts of tomatoes. And welcome back to the show. Um, boy, you've got to get out there, Peggy, to uh, Lydic Bog. I think you'd uh, really mm -hmm. enjoy I've it. I've been to that one. Been to Volo Bog. Many yes, times. and and that's I, and I have not see and now now and I get stuff from Volobog all the time. I need to get out to Volobog here, right here in uh, Illinois. Um, mm -hmm. Let's adjust that and uh, uh, and uh, and that's a it's a good thing. Uh, anytime you can get out into nature like that, especially bogs are such rare yeah. areas and in need of our protection. Uh, so please do that. Uh, I have. Um, a couple of things uh, I want to show you. Uh, one is it is, uh, and and we'll get we'll we'll promote um, uh, Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards 
uh, before uh, we wrap today. But here's a couple of things uh, you might have heard of the, you know, if, we, if Rick DeMaio were here uh, today, we'd be talking about tornadoes in Michigan. Uh, and they're rare in yeah. Michigan. They're very yeah. rare, especially in Gaylord. Especially up, yeah. Um, and especially there's a couple of video, north. couple of videos you got to see here that are just amazing. So I'm going to pop this one in first. And if you've ever driven up the state of Michigan to get up to Mackinac and go across the bridge, you've you've passed the um, Gaylord area. I'm videotaping. Oh crap! <laughs> Oh, shoot. And obviously, it's from some folks wow. that are just I'm looking out a window. I'm it, you guys. Okay, that's the first one that I found. But this one, you've got to watch the next one and watch what happens. There's no commentary. Uh, there's no commentary on this, uh, but just watch what happens. Uh, is that amazing? I don't think they realized it was a tornado or something. Well, they pulled over to get a shot of it, but obviously didn't know which way it was going to go, and it ended, ends up coming right at the vehicle, which is just um, the classic nightmare. Uh, if you're, Last and, I heard and, two people were killed in the tornado. They were. And um, um, it's the first time they've had more than one death from a tornado in decades in, in Michigan. Um, And as I mentioned, if you've ever driven up to the bridge up to Mackinac, you go right past that area and you you go to Gaylord. We used to, my family used to stop at Gaylord. We would go to Mm -hmm. the upper peninsula and uh, for vacations and uh, we'd stop in Gaylord and get hamburgers. There was a place that my dad liked and we'd stop (laughs) Gaylord was the stop. All right. So, uh, and so uh, my heart goes out to the people. And if you've seen the, uh, the videos of the destruction, there's a lot, uh, unfortunately. So this was Friday, I think, uh, I believe so. I believe that was Friday. So, and so we've got that. Okay. And then we've got Colorado. Um, oh, come on. If I can get this to, there we go. Let's uh, pop this in. They had 90 degrees the other day, and then they followed it the next day or two with snow. And you can see the branches it's brought down, all the snow uh, in Colorado after having 90-degree weather. Uh, things are leafed out. It's crazy. But it's May. Yeah. So... Uh, just thought, give you an idea. If Rick were here, he'd be he'd be definitely commenting on that. Um, and uh, another what? He'd be expounding. Yes, he would. He'd be going on for. We'd be going till eleven thirty today uh, about that. Um, which takes us to uh, the Green Dispatch, and you can go to mikenovak.net, go to our blog post, and see. Uh, some of the stories that we're not going to get to uh, because we had uh, uh, Steve and Amanda on for so long, but that was mm-hmm. fine with me. Um, one of them was in the Daily Beast. It said the headline, a monster hurricane season is coming. 
and here's the culprit. And uh, the culprit is called the loop current. Um, and it, uh, it, it runs north into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and you can see images, of, you see images of it. There's a lot of warm water pouring into the, uh, the Gulf. Um, and uh, this year, they write in uh, Daily Beast, the loop current looks remarkably similar to the way it did in 2005, the year Hurricane Katrina crossed the loop current before devastating New Orleans. Of the 27 named storms that year, seven became major hurricanes. Wilma and Rita also crossed the loop current that year and became two of the most intense Atlantic hurricanes on record. Uh, and they're saying the conditions look very similar this year. So when we do get Rick back on mm-hmm. the program, we're definitely going to have to ask him about that. Um, and uh, you, uh, some of the other headlines there one of a well, story at carvana yeah you know that's actually a good news story <laughs> not for carvana uh but no. you know as as we covered on the show carvana was going to put that uh car vendor of bird death uh this car dispenser pez dispenser of bird death uh in uh, skokie uh because skokie uh uh went against the will of its own people and the uh, the the uh, board of uh, trustees said, "Yeah, we'll put that up. We're going to make a sure. ton of money. Yeah, why not? Let's just uh, who cares about the birds?" Um, and uh, so, what has happened is that the state of Illinois has stopped Carvana from doing business here. Um, and at the same time, the company announced it's laying off twenty five hundred employees nationally and cutting spending. And so, Skokie in their infinite wisdom, said uh, they told the company in a Monday letter to stop work on the 14-story glass curtain mm-hmm. wall tower it is building uh, in in the village there. So I, I like this quote. We instruct that you do not proceed with any work on the site and that you make no further submissions or have any further contact with the village of Skokie building department <laughs> no. until such time as I inform you that you may contact the department again, Skokie corporate counsel, Michael Lorge said in the letter. Yikes. So the lawyer said, go away. Don't no even talk kidding. to us. But you know, if they had done their due diligence, because when we were t- discussing the story talking about, and it was the focus was mainly on what it, the damage it was going to do to birds. Yeah. All right. And, but and there were plus pa- the people living next door and the people living next door and the Holocaust museum down the block. Um, and, and just the, the bad image it presented uh, about Skokie and the Eden's expressway and billboards and so forth. Mm-hmm. There were people sending me articles uh, that l- were looking at the business setup of Carvana and the shakiness of the company and the issues they've had in other states and the lawsuits. And I got a number of those that were sort of in the background of all of this. And it seems to me if the board of trustees at Skokie had actually done its due diligence, they wouldn't have been blindsided by this. They wouldn't have been mesmerized by the thought of millions of dollars coming into the city uh, from this rather shaky company. Um, and, And this was out there. In in, uh, in the world, uh, even at that time. So, I don't sh- think they've even 
I could be wrong. I don't think they've even broken ground on it. So that's good timing. Yeah. As and opposed mean- to there's a big hole in the ground and part of it there already. And meanwhile, the the citizens of the village of Skokie are rising up, and they they've got a, a proposals a referendum for this fall to change the structure of government in Skokie uh, because it's been ruled by one party since about 1965, um, and uh, and these people get elected over and over again uh, every election, and 10 percent of the population turns out to vote because they know that the 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 party runs things and it's you know as as someone mentioned uh, yeah and under Mussolini the trains ran on time so uh, this is kind of what's been going on uh, in Skokie so uh, I'm glad that that stopped that's that's a victory that's a victory all right for environmentalists um, and uh, some stuff you sent me. Uh, oh, well, it, there's various things about light, and we've only got time for probably a few of these. But um, uh, one thing I found from the University of Cincinnati, uh, and it doesn't surprise me one little bit, uh, and this is something we've talked about on the show about light pollution. Uh, the headline, Light Pollution Can Disorient Monarch Butterflies. Subheading, even a single nearby light can throw off the butterfly's internal compass, University of Cincinnati biologists say. Uh, not surprising. They, uh, they say nighttime light pollution can interfere with the remarkable navigational abilities of monarchs which travel as far as Canada to Mexico and back. Um, researchers found this that... This is a segue there from the Carvana. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, light pollution, that was going to be more light. I mean, that was another bad note about the Carvana. Yes, light pollution coming from that building. Um, and researchers found that butterflies roosting at night near artificial illumination, such as a porch or street light, can become disoriented the next day because the light interferes with their circadian rhythms. Artificial light can impede the molecular process uh, responsible for the butterfly's remarkable navigational ability and trigger the butterfly to take wing when it should be resting. Um, so there's that. And then you uh, sent me the stuff from the New York times and from the city of Chicago. Maybe you want to go into that very briefly. No, go, go ahead. I'm oh, oh, okay. you're, you're doing something else. Okay. Uh, let me know. Get back to me when you can. Uh, no, no, I'm putting the articles up in the feed. That's Oh, okay. Great. Uh, new rules will end the century-long run of classic light bulbs, meaning incandescent light bulbs. That's from the New York Times. Uh, they're phasing them out. Um, 2023. 2023. So if you want to stock up on incandescence, now's the time. Uh, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, there's going to be the folks oh, out yeah. there. Who can't wait for the what folks to say. Was... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, what's interesting is is at the very end of it, you know, it goes back to the same thing we were talking about with the uh, the trees and the greenhouse stock. Light bulb manufacturers have argued that too rapid a pivot away from incandescent bulbs would damage their bottom line and lead to a glut of stranded inventory. In other words, bulbs already manufactured that could no longer be sold, which would end up eventually in landfills unused. So why have you been manufacturing them? That's what I want to know. I know because people buy them. And uh, and there are going to be people who, say, people who say, I have the right. Gosh darn it, I'm an American, and I can I can have any kind of light bulb I want. My my body, my light bulb. 
you know, whatever. And according to this article, they've been distributing incandescence a lot in um, quote unquote dollar stores. Well, it doesn't surprise me. If you've got all that extra inventory, it goes there and people can get them cheaper. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the problem with uh, incandescence, they use a lot more energy. They do produce yep. heat. Uh, sometimes that can be actually a good thing. Yeah. So, and as well, Martha, Martha just commented, you can use the incandescent bulbs as a secondary heat. Well, they and and you do even even a, a single incandescent bulb in in like a, a garage uh, produces heat that uh, I don't know if it can keep things above freezing in the, in the winter, but uh, it does. You know, there's there's some good. There's mostly mm -hmm. bad about uh, incandescent bulbs, and and we're moving on. Uh, so, which takes us to Chicago, and Peggy stumbled upon this, and I went it's back because February, uh, February. How did this get past us? Mayor Lightfoot announces CDOT has completed Chicago Smart Lighting Streetlight Modernization Program. Now, this is something we talked about on the show, and how they could have done better in choice of the lights, but they were upgrading, and they had two hundred seventy thousand lights. Uh, that they were replacing in the city of Chicago and making them shine down more and they can control the level. That's good, but they're way too much in the blue spectrum. Uh, the city has known this and, you know, had their 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 uh, purchase done um, and just sort of ignored that part of it. And then in February, they finished the program and there's no news about it. I went back, Peggy, and did a Google search. Uh, in the news, nobody covered this. None of the major uh, media organizations, and there were some very minor uh, uh, technical sites and companies that covered this. Um, but it's done. The, the uh, it, it created creates the largest lighting management system in the nation. Um, it will reduce the carbon footprint, yes, because they will be uh, less. Uh, you know getting rid of incandescence and that sort of thing and 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 the uh, sodium vapor and the mercury vapor that they had um and it's projected to save 100 million dollars in electricity costs in the first 10 years that's good all right glad to see the city saving money but they didn't take into account the damage that it can do to biology which we which the monarch thing tells us about um anytime we have too much light we have excess light uh, we're dealing with messing with circadian rhythms, and there we are. What was so, that three three years ago? We were covering that story. Yeah, standing at Humboldt Park. Yeah, video with Monica Ang at night. Yeah. yeah, before the pandemic, I think it was 2019. I think you're right. Uh, and they had only partially done it, and so now it has been finished. Um, and we're stuck with those lights for 30 years, at least, probably 40, maybe 50. Well, you know, I'll be long dead. So uh, they'll, they'll, uh, somebody, somebody else will have to take it up uh, when I'm gone. All right. And before we go, let's yeah, remind, what? Oh, did you have something so else? There's, there's a, the other good news story. Oh, okay. Tell us the other good I, news story. I'll, I'll get back so, to you. You know, we, we covered Monty and Rose. Um, you know, Monty, unfortunately, died suddenly a week ago Friday. And Rose hasn't been seen yet. The two um, Great Lakes piping plovers at Montrose Beach. So in the news this week on Friday, um, Great Lakes piping plover Amani 
Montine Rose's chick from 2021 has been spotted in Minnesota. And um, as they, they say in here, the best thing we can hope for, that however long Monty and Rose were going to be with us, whether that was five years or 10 years, that their young would go on to continue their story. And here's a, pos- a kind of a positive thing, too, uh, a story you sent me, um, why you should plant a garden that's wasp friendly. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are terrified of wasps, but they're terrified of bees, too. Uh, and we know bees are pollinators and are important for our plants and, and our food. Um, but wasps are good because they go after insects that are that cause damage in our gardens. So, um, and 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 when people think of wasps, they think of their picnics in the fall. Um, you know, yellow when, jackets, everywhere. yellow jackets. And uh, but there's more to wasps than that. And that that's a that's a great story that you should take a look at. Another one is. Um, from SF Gate, well, the, the the wasp stories from the New York Times from SF Gate, invasive jumping worms have made their way into California, and scientists are worried. Yep, it's not good. Uh, if you find them in your yard and you can put them in a plastic bag in the sun, that's good. Get them out. But did, did you see the um, the video at the end of that story with the grackle? Yes. Yeah, you know, I was going to put that on. Confused. The bird's like, "What's going on here?" It was hilarious. The grackle trying to eat a a, a jumping worm, and finally gets to it. Although I noticed that part of the jumping worm slid slid off into the water, and that's what the it it says in the article that the jumping worms shed their tail so they can escape. This jumping worm shed half its body so it could get away from the grackle. Uh, and the grackle is just fighting and fighting to eat it. And it looked like it was having a hard time swallowing it, too. It's like, I, uh, this isn't good. Uh, it needs a little more salt. So uh, I think that's uh, that's something worth paying attention to if you find uh, invasive jumping words in your yard. All right, back to this real quick. If you, have, if you live in Chicago, if you haven't entered Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards, go to chicagogardeningawards.org. We've gotten a bunch of entries already. We've still got till the 1st of July for, for folks to enter. We're still getting the word out. Um, spread looking the for judges. It's uh, looking start. for judges. You can, you can write to us. Um, and uh, you can even write, just write to me if, if, if you want to, because that might be the easiest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have until July 1st to register your garden, any kind of garden. If you think it's worthy, uh, we are definitely in gardening season and, uh, we're going to be sending out judges all over the city and finding out, uh, who's got a great looking garden and sustainable sustainability is a big part of it. Uh, and as we, it says there, community gardens, residential churches, businesses, schools, container gardens, parkways, roof gardens, ornamental or vegetable or both. All of the above. Get involved in that, and uh, we'd love to come out and visit your garden. Are we ready here? That would be the Scarlet Tanager. Ah, Scarlet Tanager. So you got one right outside the window there, huh? Right outside your app. Okay. I did not see a Tanager this year. I did see um, Indigo Buntings. Well, all I have all I have to say is I have seen a scarlet tanager. So I, I have la, other la, years, la. just not uh, this year. I'm sure you have, and you haven't seen one this year, and I have. Our thanks I to put them. I'm sh- on your app. Uh, no, sh- in, in the wild too. I'm sure you have. 
Steve Sass, thank you so much. Amanda Smith, both from Indiana Nature LLC. Thanks to Kathleen for going on the walk with me and helping uh, me shoot the videos and stuff and doing stuff this morning. Thanks to Legata, the cat, Basil, the dog. Everybody who watched, uh, go and, and sign up to, to be on our YouTube channel. Until next time, go green or... Oh, you went away and you came back. How cool. Uh, All right, let's get out of here. Well, you didn't miss much. 